Yep. I too was a stage manager. I actually <laughs> do think it's the art. It's it's in many ways the architect that understands touching all of the different parts. Yeah. So early on, I stage managed this Medea that was at BAM and toured and all kinds of things. And I think of that as my first um, MFA, that yeah. experience, both watching the director and then also learning. So I hats off always to stage managers. Welcome to What's Off, the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. Each episode features interviews with trailblazing artists, administrators, service providers, and other theater workers in the off and off-off-Broadway community. I'm your host, Ashley J. Hicks, a.k.a. Ash. And I'm your other host, Nikki Maggio. The clip at the beginning of this episode was a Patricia McGregor of New York Theater Workshop. In this episode, Talia Corin. Art New York's co-executive director sat down with Amanda Feldman of Classic Stage Company and Patricia McGregor of New York Theatre Workshop to discuss their roles as new leaders for organizations that have been around for multiple decades. All three women have been at their individual institutions for a year or less and are discovering the unique challenges that come with an ever-changing theatrical ecosystem. Well, let's get to it. And listeners, make sure to stick around after the interview with Talia, Ashley, and myself. Enjoy. My name is Amanda Feldman, she, hers, and I'm the managing director of Classic Stage Company. My name is Patricia McGregor, she, her pronouns, and I am the artistic director of New York Theatre Workshop. My name is Talia Corin, she, her pronouns, and I am the co-executive director of Art New York. Hi, friends. Hi, friend. I'm so happy that we're here. This feels like both a long time coming and also feels like first day of school vibes. Sure. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Seasonally. Um, it's so great to be here. Thank you for making time. Um, so we're going to start out by just like telling about how we got here. Um, I feel like one of the things that as a new leader I've been thinking about is like simultaneously everything feels new and also I didn't just get here. <laughs> and this idea of sort of like, where did we start and where are we now? And what does that tell us about kind of what's to come? So I don't know. Amanda, do you want to start? I guess uh, when I was young, I attended theater a lot. Um, I grew up around 45 minutes outside of New York City. So Broadway was the place that I knew to go. Um, so theater was always part of um, my experience, but I didn't think of it as a possible career until pretty late in college. I had went to school to study something else, but um, I was a precocious kid and wanted <laughs> extracurriculars in my life. So I fell into the student theater world and I uh, learned that the stage was not the best place for me. It did not serve my talents or my passions. So I started stage managing and then I started producing and then I turned around and I'm like, oh, I can make a career of this. And I sought out Broadway because that's what I knew. Um, but somewhere along the line, found myself at a nonprofit and fell in love, fell in love with the camaraderie, fell in love with the being in the room with the artists as the art was being made. Mm. I felt that in the commercial theater world that, um, at least at the level I was in my young twenties, the art had been made. I fell in love with like that playwright, those words, the actors interpretations, that really early stuff. Um, and then I kind of never looked back. Uh, for me, this question strikes me in a particular way because I'm from St. Croix. And so for me, theater always started as this communal act. 
um, in the Virgin Islands. It was often embedded in parade. It was often done in churches and then made its virtuosic version. And so when I think of my roots, I really think back to St. Croix. And my mom was an art teacher, and so she was sewing all the sequins on all the costumes. Oh so there's a level of theatricality that was always deeply embedded. But I was a sports kid, and it wasn't until I got asthma in middle school. And luckily, we had a public school in Florida. We moved to Florida at that time that had a theater class. And I read some Shakespeare, and I fell in love. And at that time in Orlando, there was... Nickelodeon and Disney and all of these kind yeah. of child actor places. So I, I started out in the performance in a professional level uh, early on and um, never thought I would love anything more than performing and got to college at SMU in Dallas. And there were some real racial tensions there. And I wanted to direct something and I directed Athel Fugard's My Children, My Africa uh. and sitting back watching the audience, the students, black, white, South African students and all kinds of people um, watch the event that we had curated and then participate in a dialogue afterwards turned me into a director. And then when I came to New York, as we talk about the New York journey, I was very lucky that Second Stage, I had a Van Leer Fellowship at Second Stage 20 plus years ago. Mm. Um, so I got to be in the room with a lot of amazing people. And then I went to Yale for directing, uh, became the artistic director of the Yale Cabaret. Never thought I would love anything more than directing and realizing, <laughs> curating, creating the environment yeah. where artists can create their work became central to me. So I was a freelance director for 10 years um, in New York, internationally. And when this opportunity came to be at New York Theatre Workshop, where I had been a usual suspect for a long time. This felt like the right place, the purpose-driven place in the right time where I felt like I would have something to contribute um, to an institution in a field that has contributed so much to my life. There's so many like great threads, I feel like, in both of those stories. And I just love that when we think about careers in theater, there's so much that's invisible to people, even people who grew up like loving theater or knowing about theater. There are so many roles and so many ways to build a life that are not visible to most folks for a really long time. And I think it's a really interesting progression to sort of find yourself and also find where your creativity lives. There are people who are brilliant performers, brilliant storytellers in a variety of ways who have to make a life or because their interests change gone into different lanes, yeah. but perhaps that early spark was more in the performer lane. And I'm often looking for places, whether it's audience members, whether it's board members, whether it's staff, whether it's artists who have a producer hat in them as well. Yeah. How do we cross-pollinate and how do we allow for people to show up in their fullness yeah. and build communities? I look a lot at my role, uh, you know, now as managing director, but even prior to that in my career, as what is it to create a a space that every artist can do their best work and mm. feel safe and feel cared for. And um, what is it to, to really take away all of the barriers and, and, you know, we talk a lot about self-care in the post-COVID uh, as we're all coming back into this space. Yeah. But like, you know, I remember talking about it years ago but re and even when I was at the Lark Play Development like what is it to give the artists what they need to achieve mm. what they want to achieve and what is it to ask the artists questions and to not be prescriptive in in how we work with them but to 
let them hear what you're thinking. And then from there, they can know how they want to answer those questions. Yeah. So I always think of my role as um, like number one fan or, or lead audience member. Mm -hmm. So I can bring that into the room. We've all been in our roles almost a year, and I feel like there's a whole fleet of other people <laughs> coming behind us. Um, and I feel like that's both really exciting and also such an opportunity to be really mindful about what is what is the way that we want people to not expect chaos, not expect drama, not expect um, strife when they're in an artistic practice, but also to really recognize we are in a time of upheaval and kind of maintaining steadiness, maintaining care, maintaining that kind of like big, broad hold on things while also really allowing for that super intimate, super personal relationship. I think a lot about culture and capacity, mm. which I think as we um, navigate the current moment, Paying attention to both culture and capacity in very yeah. particular ways um, is central. I think people often ask, which is a very valid question, how many scripts do you get? And how, you know, there's a lot of, of, of what is that curation. But I think in many ways we have to pay attention to the culture. And the culture, again, I always think of who are the stakeholders? What is the ecosystem? Yeah. That culture is the artist's the staff, the audiences, um, those are central to the culture. And I think the pandemic, which stopped a lot of in-person gathering, mm -hmm. was really detrimental, clearly monumentally across the world, but to our cultures, yeah. for theater people who are wired to show up together, having those meeting points yeah. where people can build a culture of care so that when you do hit, because we will hit emergencies, mm -hmm. yep, we will hit crisis, we will hit moments that we have to interrupt and reset. But if you've built a culture of connection and care, you have a deeper well to pull from. And then capacity. I, as we curated this season, there was a bridge where we, we were considering whether to do four or five plays. Yep. And in response to a capacity wall, that was being hit, that was, you know, the tidal wave of everyone trying to catch up from the pandemic and get yep. everything in. And um, and especially as a new leader, it was very hard to get new ideas in because everyone was at absolute capacity. Totally. So while I am a person who's really often charging towards the big idea, I said, no, let's actually reduce to four, four shows yep. so that we can reset, recenter a capacity that is more yeah. sustainable and from there, we can consider new ideas. So as much as I think of everything else, I, I think I process almost every decision I make through the idea of how is this going to affect the culture and what capacity do we have to be able to move this thing forward purposefully. Yeah. I feel like it's impossible to underestimate change energy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as leaders, it's often our job to initiate and, and kind of identify gaps or or roadblocks and come up with a way through them and I feel like I always forget or I'm constantly reminding myself how much longer the tail is for things and so I love that sort of frame of culture and capacity because I feel like both of them have a long tail and wanting to really acknowledge that and and know that decisions that I make or that you know the board makes or that are made with a handful of staff affect not only our full staff, but all of our members and all of their audiences. And, you know, trying to really keep that 
like big thread. There's a um, organizational psychologist. I hope I got it right, Pippi Kessler, and we've been talking to her about change. What does it mean mm-hmm. to change? You know, and not just acutely where we are, but in general. And um, she said, "Your role is to be the OOO person. You're, you know, you've mm-hmm. come in to bring new ideas." But the OOO person is also going to bring out the whoa, whoa, whoa people because ultimately there and you have to figure out what the balance is. And just naming the phenomenon outside of the personal dynamics or outside of personal relationships and just say, this is the phenomenon. New things are OOO and those will balance with the whoa, whoa, whoa. And uh, she's got some great exercises that sometimes in a meeting you might shift who the OOO person is and who the whoa, whoa, whoa person is. And I find her to be a really delightful thinker about phenomenon of change and culture and capacity. I feel like I'm often the whoa, whoa, whoa person, (laughs) the person who is staring at the numbers and staring at the staff. But I find that it's helpful to frame it not in a we can do this, we can't do that. It's we can do this now, we can do that later. And like what is the priorities? What is it to forgive ourselves for not hitting every single little thing that we wanted to accomplish to this goal because the day is only so long and we are only so many people. And one of the challenges stepping into this organization that I have found is that what is the capacity? You know, I was coming from a much smaller organization into the staff is three times as large, the budget is three to four times as large. And I, I remember thinking, oh, things will be different because this organization has more capacity. But what I have found is that the wants are that much more. The desires are that much larger. So I I find myself in a very similar place. Um, And yet also just learning the people, and we have a very new team, change breeds change. And, And not only are we juggling the tasks at hand, but like the learning that has to do along with the tasks at hand. Mm. And it's both really exciting to push each other and to figure out where our our boundaries are and, and how much we can accomplish, but also like taking a breath and being like, okay, that's not going to happen for this one. We'll get it on the next one. There is only time and opportunity in front of us. It's just knowing where you can pause and where you should push. And um, it is always challenging. I feel like that's such a good other way of describing what Patricia was saying about culture and capacity, that it's like, it's not necessarily a no, but it's a yes and in what way? You know, how do we hold those things? Um, Art New York staff has a, a retreat every spring. And so obviously this year's, I had been in the role for like six months. And so there were all of these sort of big projects and big goals that they had established the year before. Um, And we went into the retreat and it was like, what if it's okay that we did some of what we said? And what if it's okay to just let the rest of it go? And I feel like everybody's shoulders went, that idea of like, what if we forgave ourselves? You know, like such a good reminder because... There's a lot of pressure. And it's really hard to do. Like, yes. this is, and I feel that I am the hardest on myself mm-hmm. than I am on anyone else. It is really hard to do. But like the theater demands a lot of us. And mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't do it if I didn't deeply love it and right. value it. But there is balance that needs yeah. to happen. Jim, Nicola, my predecessor mm-hmm. and dear friend and mentor, uh, we would have coffee often, especially once a month about 
the yeah. first month months that I was there. And he would often say, you've got to find a way that this is going to be your artistic practice because mm-hmm. you've been in like in the kind of fast lane of a certain artistic practice. So how does this become your artistic practice? And in my artistic practice as a director, I often think of my work as a funnel where everything is possible. And mm. then by the time you get down to opening night, it's like, no, there, it had to be that one pen and that one pen has to be at a 45 degree angle so the light can yes. hit. And like this one thing is possible but it's the perfect thing. And I actually think in this time where we're trying to recalibrate in the field yeah, and there's a lot of necessary contraction and a lot of just to stabilize, I think it's almost like that cone but tipped upside down. Whereas I think of scale and I think maybe it's actually that I need to first start with how can we take that pen and move it 45 degrees and then if we do that thing successfully, then we'll figure out how to build to the next, to the next, to the next. And so then all of these things will feel possible. And so I think often about scale. Mm. And I do think that the things that you have agreed are important to do, finding some way to manifest those. And one of our newer board members, Will Graham, they often say you've got to also be able to risk and fail a little bit. And that's going to be hard at this time. So how do we resource gather so we can create the right kind of cushion to allow for a little risk and a little failure, yes. but at a scale that's not going to burn people out. Right. What is the appetite that we can cultivate for a little bit of risk and yes. a little bit of failure? You can't build sort of a tolerance for or even excitement for risk. And I think that's maybe also connected to what's happening with audiences right now. I apparently said to Risa during my interview that then they've quoted back to me several times, which I think is funny is that, you know, I think that theater should be a safe place to feel something dangerous mm-hmm. and that I think our field is struggling with that level of risk and danger and capacity. I mean, I think often about what is the surrounding experience that is going to care for you mm. regardless of the show. So I think it's one of the things that Jim did so brilliantly in centering the lobby with Signature and that we knew that that was a community space. No matter whether you were, there was a transactional thing or not going on, you could sit in that lobby, you could use that Wi-Fi, you felt cared for, you could have a glass of wine if you want to. I think a lot, even in the cabaret, which I ran, there were high risk in terms of like, (laughs) what is this going to be? It was rehearsed for a week. Who, Who the heck knows? But everyone knew that there was a sense of community. You would see some people you knew. Yeah. You could have, you know, a little food, a little a little drink if you wanted to. And there was an experience. I think it's part of why concerts are going so well. Yeah. Because you know, A, a lot of people know the artists, so they're not taking that big of a risk. But they know that they're going to have a wraparound experience mm-hmm. that's going to be joyful, that's going to connect them to community. So if we're not just... Netflix and chill. Right. If we're showing up in person, what are the things that are going to make that meaningful? And so um, it's we've we're partnering with a lot of restaurants at the workshop. We just had all of these like partnerships with Marry Me where um, they were going to Cubbyhole and having drinks (laughs) before and really leaning into um, the as we call it, the queer cocktail of both the show and the wraparound experience. And I think people are really showing up for that. So how can we create those community spaces? I think that will actually build up risk tolerance Mm. to be able to try some new things. One of the things I love about Classic Stage Company is that we have this thrust stage and audiences are sitting on three sides of it. So you cannot 
deny the fact that you are in a room with others experiencing this thing. And it's one of the reasons I fell in love with the theater. Yeah. And I think leaning into the community, as Patricia was saying, and then like as best as we can, artistic excellence. Like keep producing shows that are incredible, that yeah. get people coming back again and again and again. And it doesn't happen overnight. And people have fallen out of the habit of coming to the theater, or at least so they say, right? <laughs> the numbers tell us. Um, but I, I really think, especially with the new artistic leadership, that like there is an excitement in specifically the New York theater scene that I'm really leaning into myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, not every show is going to be the best thing ever, but over and over again, I have been really pleasantly surprised and excited by the work I'm seeing on our stages. And yeah. I just think as long as we keep that up, people will return. I couldn't agree more. It, um, this is a bit of a pivot, but I am curious. We are all relatively young women stepping into leadership roles at like multi-decade institutions, 40, 50 plus years. And I wonder what your experiences of that have been. I, um, in some ways have walked my whole life with an idea that no particular part of my identity should stop me from anything I want to do. Yeah. There's like a very willful occupation of space, especially yes. when I know that I'm taking up space that maybe was not occupied by somebody who looks like me. So in some ways I may um, be willfully pushing aside what that means. And in other times, um, I do think consciously or unconsciously, you hit a wall with certain people who are just not used to A, a new idea, yep. and B, a new idea coming from a young black woman. We all have our own biases. And the, the hopeful thing for me is when we can have real conversations about that. Mm. And when I can have a conversation with myself about like, is this idea either just a bad idea or sure. maybe not scaled in the right kind of way. And is this resistance because of some kind of, you know, bias and, and be able to have a conversation with people about that. And it's not easy, but it's really fruitful. Elizabeth Alexander in the Mellon foundation, she said, be bold, you know, be bold and know that people will hold you up and we're going to just walk into it. And to know that I think trust is central. Yes. How do we build trust, especially in a really difficult time? Mm -hmm. Having some straightforward conversations about bias and what yep. that may lead and are we hitting that or are we not hitting that? Um, trying to coalition build around purpose mm -hmm. and ideas as much as possible. And then also to call things out at times and yep. say, I'm not going to let this harm me because it can. Right. So that's just, you know, I feel, I feel very um, excited and bold and also, um, realistic and cautious at times yeah. about what that can mean, um, even for very well-intentioned people. Right. I, I will say that we are young, uh, relatively speaking, but we're not, right? Like we carry the <laughs> yes. weight of more than one decade of experience of doing the work that we are doing. And, you know, someone will look at me and, and think that I am much younger than I am. And then I often have to be like, no, 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 actually... I have been doing this yeah. for almost two decades. I have been doing it at various levels across this New York City theater industry. And I know 
that we don't yet have this trusting relationship, but what I'm going to promise you is transparency, yep. honesty. I'm going to bring good faith to this relationship, and I need you to do the same. And yeah. you know what? Most of the time, it does take time, but like you, we get there. I think it's it's both of what you said of sort of like both really owning and knowing my experience and also, you know, talking to a funder who was like, well, when I started funding Art New York in 1991, and I'm like, <laughs> I was young. <laughs> um, and, and I think that there's this um, sort of tension or like duality between wanting to honor and acknowledge the decades of institutional experience, you know, that is like held in the the letterhead <laughs> that we are on. And also feeling the pull towards like, but this is our time. People haven't solved the challenges that we're going to solve. People haven't dreamed the things that we're going to come up with. And so I think there is this interesting play between wanting to have reverence for and appreciation for and deep respect for what has come before while also acknowledging that this is where we are and this is who I am and this is the yeah, life experience and identity and way of moving through the world that I carry, whether that shows up in interpersonal things of people being like, um, not from you <laughs> or, you know, not right now. Um, or just in those sort of like larger institutional dynamics of kind of like tradition and change or what we have done and what we're going to do. Well, then I think it's, it's, um, especially important with all of those dynamics at play to figure out who are your real allies yeah. about the things you feel you have the superpower and passion to get over the line. It could be on the board, it could be on the staff, it could be at institutions who are really excited, who are energized, who are animated by what you're animated by. I think sometimes we can spend a lot of time trying to convert people who are not as excited about yeah. a thing. And it's, it's I think, more useful to say, heard, legitimately heard. Like, I, I hear your counterpoint, yep. and, and I need to really be the whoa, whoa, whoa person in this moment to mm -hmm. take that in. And also to figure out how do you... Um, lean into some of those folks who are really excited about yeah. what that is that you've come to do and who don't see the generational difference or perceived generational difference right. as uh, detrimental, but they see that as a real asset to be able to bring the next generations of people forward with wherever you are. One other fun thing that I thought would be good to talk about is we all have partners in this work. Um, how has it been? Tell me about, tell me about your people. Jeremy Blocker, who's the executive director at New York Theatre Workshop, uh, the thing I love, Jeremy and I are so different and so wildly aligned. And yeah. when we are wildly aligned, it feels we are unstoppable. Yes. And I think the, the deep work um, of this time is to figure out how to articulate those alignments as clearly as possible and be sure that the culture... Um, uh, is in step with how we are in step. When I was interviewing, I said, this is the central relationship. Yep. And there are going to be times where I'm going to be the QB and I need you to be the linebacker. And there are going to be times where you're the QB and I'll be the linebacker. And right. that has to do with relationships. It has to do with lived identities. It has to be, yep. But as long as we're in step, 
we can really move this thing forward. And I, yeah. I do think that that's a central, um, it's just a really central relationship. And I think it has to be really attended to. I love that. I love that. Well, what's so interesting for me and Jill is that Jill is also new at the right. organization. So she uh, is a little over six months ahead of me, nine yeah. months, something like that. So, and my relationship with Jill, because our industry is so small, goes back to 2005, 2006. Yeah. So like we met when we were both baby assistants working at totally. our various offices. And then she dramaturged an indie theater show I produced. And and that was the seeds of our relationship. So, you know, when this position came open, um, I was not necessarily looking to change jobs, but I'm like, oh, I think I like the idea of working with Jill. Uh -huh. And 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 there is and she is there's a joyousness around her and her vision for um, really playing with the classics and finding unknown classics and and elevating voices that haven't been elevated just were really inspiring to me. So to be able to walk into that room and to really make sure she has the tools she needs, but also to have hard conversations with her and knowing that she is a person who will listen and who will get into the numbers with me if, the, yeah. if that is what I need in that moment. Just like I will get into, you know, the, the notes, the post-show yeah. notes with her. And we really have a really wonderful balance as, but also um, I know that she has my back and I have hers and that is so important. Yeah. Um, and it, it's been really joyous. It's really been a wonderful partnership th thus far, as many months as we are in. Yeah, I love that. I think sometimes roles find us for any number of reasons. And it feels like there's sort of like a beautiful homecoming of you and Jill getting to work together in this chapter of your creative lives and professional lives. And, you know, obviously the workshop is a homecoming for you as well. It's known and also it gets to be new. Um, I think that was really fruitful as we think about how to move into these new roles, that there's a prior history, a mm -hmm. prior trust, a prior artistic visioning together um, that we lean into yeah. uh, when, the, when the times are tough, because sometimes the times are tough, and then you lean into um, those past experiences that get you really excited about the future experiences. Risa and I didn't meet until my interview with them, which was very funny that we are one step removed 700 ways, you know, mm -hmm. as would be expected in this um, business. And I feel like it's been such a joyful time to collaborate and to really recognize that, like, I'm so grateful to not have to be doing it alone, you know, to have somebody that I can just text and be like, here's a crazy idea or, you know, this meeting just happened, I think we need a reset or a reframe, um, but also to really feel kind of buoyed by that shoulder to shoulder. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's really, it's one of the wonderful things. Um, I joke that I'm more curious uh, about financial structure. <laughs> and I think Jeremy is more, um, has a, a deeper artistic sensitivity um, than some people or, or is passionate about some of those things in, in a yeah. different way. And so yeah. we know that we're best when we're together. But if something happens, each one of us could actually flip over yes. and, and uh, in many ways share the responsibilities that we might think are in one particular column, but they're actually shared. And I think that's where 
some of the best partnerships um, come out, that you know where your lanes are, you know how they're complementary, yeah. but you can switch lanes if you need to totally. to be able to take something over the line. Yeah, I love that. I don't know if this is actually something that is changing, but it feels like there was a time when the sort of artistic director, executive director lanes felt so rigid and sort of like who do, who reports to whom or, or whatever. And it feels like now... There is so much more fluidity. You know, people who came up as producers, some of them are artistic directors, some of them are executive directors, because there's a huge crossover of skill sets. Um, and that kind of ability to be a champion for the ideas, whether it's a champion for the, you know, the lighting designer or a champion for the marketing department or a champion for, you know, the building needs to be repaired, you know, that all of those actually are the same core skill set. What comes to mind for me is my time at the Foundry Theater and Melanie Joseph, who is such a wonderful mentor to me. Um, she didn't believe in titles outside of the title producer. I love and that. you came into the Foundry Theater and you were, and that was the title you were given. And I remember uh, someone who had been there before me was pushing back on that. And she's like, managing producer? Because like, what do you do with that role? But I really think it incorporates all of what we do. And I've actually taken to it. And so, you know, managing director, or general manager, or, or executive director, yeah. what I do is make art happen. Yep. And sometimes that means writing a grant. And sometimes that means talking to the production manager. And sometimes that means, you know, having a conversation with a playwright or an actor in the room. Um, and sometimes that's running payroll. Yeah. But what I do is produce, and it's really important to me to make sure that um, wherever you fit on that, you know, marketing department or development yeah. department, that you believe that the art is yours also. Yeah. Um, and that the shows are yours and that you helped create it. And to like really have that sense of ownership for everyone on the team, no matter where you are. Yeah. I think that's so right on. And it also feels like you know, knowing Jill and her practice, mm -hmm. it seems like that's such a complimentary, you know, I can imagine that as a very shared ethos in that company, um, which I think is probably really energizing. It, it really is. And, and Jill is, is, again, such a treat to work with. Um, while we're talking about people and things that inspire us and energize us, um, I have a question. We are really grateful to our friends at PAL, the Parent Artist Advocacy League, for inspiring us to ask this. Uh, but Tell me who you're inspired by. Who do you learn from? Who do you look to when you need to refill your cup? Well, when I think of people I love, I'll start with hyperlocal because I'm yeah. often thinking about like the workshop and the ecosystem of New York theater. And so one of my favorite partnerships that's budding and we're trying to nurture the soil is with Mia at La Mama because mm. I think La Mama is such an incredible um, organization with such a powerhouse of a history. We've been thinking about what are some of the dynamic partnerships. So even on our block, yeah. Sami Chester, who runs Studio One, I, I'm very inspired by our block, particularly because there's these open streets on Thursdays yeah. where everyone can pour into the streets. And again, I'm often interested in accessibility, democratizing, how to how do we serve our hyper-local communities in non-transactive um, ways. And so yeah. I'm really inspired by all my peers on the block. Um, I'm really inspired. I just 
um, saw the postcard for Camilla Forbes mm. and everything that she's doing at the Apollo and they're expanding so cool. their space in such amazing ways. So I'm inspired by so many people, but I'm, I'm going to kind of take it from the hyper local to a little zoomed out in the city to outside of the city. I'm in conversation with Maria Goyanes at Woolly Mammoth yep. and I'm in conversation with Terrell who's taking over the Geffen and, and Glenn at Steppenwolf and, and that kind of we don't have to solve everything in isolation. That's actually right. not the goal yep. that we're supposed to resource share. And some of that resource share is the the ideating with your peers that I think is happening now more than ever. And yep. that's thrilling. I love that. Yes. So many great people. And I'm going to take that and expand on it in the in a smaller way. But there, uh, I don't even know who started it, but there is a listserv that is a group of managing directors and executive directors in New York, and they are my everything. I have been part of that listserv under four different hats I've worn in my career, and they are the people, be it Rob Bradshaw from Playco, be it uh, Janie from New Georges, be it um, Cynthia from Soho Rep, like all of these incredible minds that I get to be in communication with on a regular basis now that I'm part of a slightly larger organization. There is a group of thinkers that have been caretaking this this city's ecosystem, the theater ecosystem, for years and years. And mm. to know that they are a phone call, a text, an email away just brings me both comfort and um, appreciation their work and their leadership and knowing that I could be there for others in that group as yeah. we try to figure this all out together. Sometimes it is a lonely job to sit on top of an organization. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really great to, to not be alone. And I have to name, I would be remiss not to name the bridge between my partner in work and my partner at home because my partner at home is also one of the associate artistic directors at the public. And so whenever I feel like he's my he's my inspiration and BS meter, because if I have That's a new idea perfect. and um, I just see from either the conversation we have or the look in his eyes to think, is this really going to serve the public good? Yeah. Are you serving the artist and are you serving the public good? And so his partnership and ideating in that is really um, central to my practice and has made me a better person and a better leader. I love the idea that um, part of what fuels us all is this idea of service and stewardship. You know that, Amanda, you were talking about this network of people who have held off-Broadway, not usually on the front page of anything and often doing the least glamorous things. And this idea of if it's not in service of the real public good, what is it about? And we're wasting a lot of ego and a lot of time. Um, I think, you know, when you read about burnout and when you read about cultures of depletion and that service is actually one of the greatest antidotes to you know, burnout and, and kind of uh, institutional fatigue. Um, when I think about leadership, that it really is about service. Completely. I mean, we had a new um, idea for a project that came to us. And it was a group of Ukrainian teens who'd been displaced by the war and they wanted to do this piece and they had done it um, in a center at, in Brooklyn and, um, but had a real desire to do it at a th- real theater yeah. that they knew. And so it took some doing and again, it took some conversations about scale, at what scale and at what time. 
but the workshop is in what's called Little Ukraine. Yeah. And I said, I ca- it might mean that we have to cancel something else or do something differently or I'll knock on a door and fundraise, but it feels vital to say yes to these Ukrainian teens. Right. And it was actually a beautiful essentialized production that we ran for a weekend. It gave me the energy to totally. stay up a little later, to write one more email, to make one more call. And so that idea of, of being purposeful to be of service um, is really energizing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There is nothing better than having you know creative leaders talk about what excites them. And I'm excited for everything that you are both doing. I'm excited for our field. Um, with everything that's going on, I feel like there's so much to feel a lot of confetti and joy about. Absolutely. Thank you for Thanks. the lane that you're in and all the extraordinary work you and this incredible staff. Kudos doing. to the whole Art New York team. They're it rock stars. Is, it Absolutely. is a pleasure. I've been a fan of Art New York for my entire career. Yay. And, um, <laughs> it is a place that I know I can come home and I'm so grateful for this conversation. Yeah. Amazing. More soon, friends. Talia, wow, you're you're incredible. Hey, thanks. You're absolutely incredible. That was an that was an absolutely beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful to Patricia and Amanda for being brilliant and fun and thoughtful and and bringing so much of themselves to this conversation. And that is like a perfect segue to my first question. (laughs) (laughs) Just like as if you read my mind. One of the sentences I gleamed, um, I believe, it's from Patricia. She said, uh, "Being a leader is showing up in all your fullness." Mm. And I would love to hear how you model that for us at Art New York. How do you show up as a new leader in all your fullness? Uh, That's such a good invitation. And I think it's something that is hard to, like, I think that there's something about holding both a lot of rigor and a lot of kind of high expectations and balancing that with high joy, You know, I think when I think about who I am, you know, I'm somebody who equally loves a well-crafted email and also a well-timed GIF. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for us, especially now, the way that people work and collaborate, to be really generous with, like, who we are without setting an expectation that is, like, boundaryless. <laughs> I think part of that, like, balancing fullness is, like, also honoring and respecting boundaries. Yes, and I will say, as your coworker and your staff member, you bring the confetti. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Thank you. That's, that's in- intentional. I really appreciated how Patricia and Amanda named so many people that motivate them, that inspire them, that they go to when they need to refill their cup. So I have the same question for you. Who inspires you? Who motivates you? Who do you go to when you need to refill your cup? From when I was young, and I think probably in the phase of my life when I was doing a lot of auditions, I came up with this idea of having pocket people, people who you could put in your pocket with you and take into hard rooms. And I feel like that idea is something that I think about a lot. And I feel like there are so many people, you know, starting from when I was really young all the way through now who are really pocket people for me. But a couple that I I couldn't have this conversation without acknowledging. Jim Houghton is somebody who is such a model for visionary leadership, for being the most human and humane, and also who just loved 
the work. And so that's somebody that I think about a lot. Closer to home, the people that I call when I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) what are we going to (laughs) do? You know, certainly having Risa as a partner, I mean, they've just become immediately invaluable in my life. Um, And I'm so grateful to have like inherited such a beautiful partnership. I also, you know, have to give a shout out to Casey York at Ars Nova, who's been one of my true blues since our days as residents at Playwrights Horizons. Um, And I just get so excited anytime I get to be in a room with a, a theater leadership team where they have the kind of conversation that Amanda and Patricia had at the end of like, they're doing such amazing work. And I have a final question for both you, Talia, and for Ashley. Ooh, exciting. For our listeners out there, this is our final episode of our first season of Art New York What's Off podcast. Oh, <laughs> confetti, confetti, confetti. And so this is less about this specific episode, but more for you and Ashley and, and for myself. What do we hope listeners take with them when they listen to this first season of Art New York's What's Off? I hope that people feel the kind of joy and anticipation that we got to feel in the room today. Mm. Um, I hope that people feel connected to one another and to this shared act of audacity to get people together in dark rooms and tell stories and recognize that that's an incredible gift And I think to feel really affirmed that wild things are going to happen in your journey towards making things. And also equally brilliant people are out there having difficult conversations, trying new things, you know, increasing that appetite for risk and doing so with so much joy. I feel like this season has really been a celebration to me of how rad theater makers are. Truly, Ashley. Well, first of all, I co-sign everything that (laughs) Talia just said. I think I hope that listeners walk away with this feeling of community and knowing that this work is not happening in a vacuum and that because of the nature of the many culture shifts within our field, that it kind of feels as though, oh, I'm alone in this. And I hope that after these first nine episodes, listeners walk away feeling like, oh, I know who to go to. I know who Mm. to ask. I know who to look out for. And that's really exciting. Um, I think it kind of uh, brings the hope back. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think my my answer would be um, the beauty of conversation. Mm. I think... We were in harmony right there. That was great. (laughs) As a theater artist myself, in my own practices, as a director, as what I call a theater, a theatrical curator, I always say something like dramaturgy is conversation. And I find the beauty of being in conversation with one each other in connecting, whether it's in the Mm. room for these podcasts, uh, listening and speaking to each other, or even being out in the world listening to the podcast that we're recording or other podcasts and having conversations within your head and within yourself. Yeah. That's when like the true magic of connection and creativity and uh, pure joy comes from. Yeah. So I think that's what I, what I hope uh, we accomplished. So I love that. And I also just want to give a huge shout out to you, Nikki and Ash. 
Ash and Erica and David, the incredible team that um, produced and developed and brainchilded um, this incredible podcast. And so thank you for guiding these conversations with so much uh, generosity and joy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit art-newyork.org to learn more about our many programs and offerings, including our very own What's Off podcast. Until next time. At Art New York, we empower our community to define their own vision for success and always keep an eye out for what's next. Our responsive resources, just like this podcast, illuminate truly innovative solutions to the toughest challenges facing our field. You can support the next wave of theatrical innovation by visiting our website at art-newyork.org slash donate to make a donation today. Thank you. What's Off is a production of Art New York. Executive producer, David E. Shane. Associate producer, Erica Ray Barnes. Line producers, Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio. With audio engineering by Catalene Media. Music.